hear about the Ebenezer. Now, today as we're getting into James chapter 4, the end of James chapter 4, there's a couple of sayings that are, are popular. Okay, the first one is, pull that one up there for me, Rob. Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Now, I grew up in downtown Atlanta, so this saying never really made a whole lot of sense to me. Didn't have a creek, didn't know what, 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 what that was going to mean. Now, two years ago when we told Lynn Kesey that we were going to come to Radius uh, to visit and, and it started raining early that morning and rained all day and, and flooded the state, I understood. Lord willing, creek don't ri- the creek rose that day. We didn't go to church. But the issue here is if you notice it's saying it's creek with a capital C. Because the saying was a man, the president of the United States says, are you going to bring your people to the to Washington, and he says, Lord willing, and the creek Indians don't rise, then I'll be there. So he's saying, that if the Lord wills, and if circumstances make it okay, I'll be there. Now, there's another saying you probably don't hear quite as often as I do, because I'm around Muslim background believers a lot, is the word inshallah. You'll hear a lot of Muslim background believers, a lot of Arabs who will say this phrase. You don't need to freak out when they say this phrase. If they say Allah Akbar, you need to be careful. Okay, Allah Akbar means it's about to get bad. But inshallah, it just means God wills. So they'll say, I'm going to do this inshallah, you know, if, if God wills. And you say, well, they shouldn't use the name Allah. Well, we won't get into that whole discussion today. But, but this whole idea of if the Lord wills, and we use this terminology a lot. You know, there's a, it's always popular. You know, if you want a popular... Uh, series to, to go to and ask people to come and sign money to come to your conference is talk about how we're going to find out what God's will is for your life. Boy, people will pay money to come to find out what God, especially if they are single and they want to know, hey, who does God have for me? Or if they're looking for a job, you know, or they're about to graduate college and they don't have a girl or a job, you know, it begins, you know, there's this pressure. I've got to find out what God's will is for my life. And and not only that, we use God's will and and using that terminology many times in a wrong way. I've heard so, so many. I had a young couple one time come to me. Now, this young man calls me. I've never met him in my life. He said, I went to elementary school with your wife. And her, I met her mother the other day at the store, and she said that you're a pastor. Would you marry me and my girlfriend? That's a good way to start a conversation, right? <laughs> and so I said, you know, I don't guarantee to marry anybody till I at least meet with them, find out what's going on. So I meet with this young couple. He's 22. This is going to be his second marriage. She's 23, has two children. This is going to be her third marriage. I'm meeting with them in April. They've met each other in January, and they want to get married in May. I said, well, you know, I I really don't think that's wise. (laughs) And they said, why? I said, well, why do you want to get married? Because we love each other. Well, did you love the first two husbands you had? Yeah. Well, how do you know this one's different? Well, we just believe this is God's will. Well, you know, that's a good thing to say to a pastor, right? Because if you tell the pastor it's God's will, I mean, how can he say no? Right? I mean, if it's God's will, the pastor's going to be disobedient if he says no. I said, guys, you know what? When I sign that piece of paper, I'm not signing it for the 25 bucks you might pay me to do your wedding. 
I'm signing it saying, I believe these two people should be together. And I'm signing my name on there to say, I agree with this. I can't do that. I don't think you're going to make it. I don't mean to be negative, but, you know, you just, you need to process this a little bit longer. May came, they found somebody who would do it for the 25 bucks. May came, and the young man stood there at the front of the church, and stood there at the front of the church, and stood there at the front of the church, and the young lady never showed up. I'm thankful I wasn't standing there with him that day. But the issue is we use God wills. It's God's will that I do this too many times to justify our own sin. So let's look today at what James says about God's will. Beginning in verse 13 of James chapter 4, he says this. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Moses said this in Psalm 90. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The idea here is realizing and understanding that every day is a precious gift from the Lord. And we need to trust and understand that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. But if we're going to live till tomorrow, we need to make the plans and we need to make the the arrangements of what we're going to do tomorrow based on what God desires out of us, not just what we desire. It's not a matter of using God wills as some sort of mantra, you know, or, or this idea of, If I just say it, you know, it's going to be okay. It's not a magic formula to say if the Lord wills. What he's saying here is we need to understand and know and try to figure out what God's will is for us and be obedient in that, not make our plans and hope that God will give us a blessing on it. And so he's he's, he's challenging people here. In Luke chapter 12, and we won't look at the passage, but there's a man who says, man, God has blessed me so much with so many crops. and so many, I'm going to build all these extra barns and silos to put all my crops in. And I'm going to make myself a great name. And I'm going to have all this stuff. And God says, guess what? <laughs> you're not going to make it till tomorrow. Tonight, you're going to die. And all that's going to go to everybody else. Now, neither James nor Jesus in Luke is saying it's a bad thing to make wealth. He's not saying it's a bad thing to have stuff. But what he is saying is it's a bad thing to rely on that to make your life complete. So how do we know from one day to the next what God's will is? How do we determine this? So let's see. How do we know God's will? First thing is, don't be ignorant. He says, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You know, to know God's will, we need to not be so ignorant to assume 
that we have all this time left. Now again, Proverbs over and over again talks about making plans and it's good to be, you know, we're not saying here in this passage, well, just kind of play each day by ear. We'll see what happens. It is important that we make plans, but the point is we make those plans based around what does God desire and based around the fact that if those plans fall through, we understand and know that God's in control. He says, don't be ignorant. Don't say we're going to do this because you really don't know. Life is short. I remember when I was 18, and we've talked about this, when I was 18 years old, my dad was 54 and he died. And everybody talked about, oh, how young he was. And I thought, yeah, you know, not really. I mean, I was 18, 54 seemed ancient. You know, February, I turned 54. I'm going, man, he was young. You know, because it's all a matter of perspective. But the issue is, when my dad retired in August of 1982, he had all these plans of what he was going to do with his retirement. And in October, he died. Now, I'm not trying to be depressing this morning. What I'm saying is when we begin to make plans and we're seeking for God's will, understand and know that it's not a matter of us saying, God, what's your will? And so I'm going to do all these things in the future. What's your will for me right now, Lord? Show me what your will is for me today because I don't know what tomorrow holds. So life is short. Don't be ignorant. You know, know that God is in control. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. See, anytime we think it's all about how smart I am, how much I can figure out, how much I can do, we get ourselves in trouble. Because I can remember as a 17-year-old sitting on a beach in Panama City Beach, Florida, saying, Lord, I'll serve you. And I want to I be serving you however you call me to serve you in anything, but God, don't let me be involved in missions. I'll do youth ministry I might, if you really force me, pastor a church, but, but don't, don't get me involved in this missions thing. For those of you who know me know I work for a mission agency. God said, hey, sorry, <laughs> you know, it's not your plans. You know, because he had a different plan. He had a better plan than what I thought I had at 17. I thought I knew it all. And so we need to be careful. We need to understand. We don't need to be ignorant. We also don't need to be disobedient. Verse 17 says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now this is not talking about not doing something that you don't know. In other words, it's not being able to plead ignorance. Well, I didn't know I was supposed to do that, so therefore I didn't do it. This is when you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is what God's called you to do, that this is what God says in his word, that this is the truth you're to follow, and you say, you know what, I know that's the truth, but I'm going to do this. That is sin. And when you walk in sin, you are not going to know and understand God's will. It's totally impossible because you have shut him off. He said, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to do my own thing. Now, that doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. How many of us here, in your teenage years, there were a time or two maybe when you and your parents didn't get along? All right, raise your hands. Don't lie. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Every one of you, we know it. Because you know, it's just the nature of the game when you're a teenager. 
You know, parents, I used youth minister for nine years. And parents would be great when their kids were in the children's ministry. And that child would turn 12 and they knew next year they're going to be in the youth ministry. They'd come to me like, you're head and legs. What am I going to do? They're going to be teenagers next year. Just, you know, it's going to be a weird few years. Just don't kill them and it'll be okay. You know, just understand because they don't know what's going on in their body. One day they feel like they're an adult and they're going to challenge mom and dad. The next day they want mom and dad to hold them and keep them in the bed with them and, and cry with them. They don't know because they're in between being a kid and being an adult. So let them live. Now I got off on, on a tangent here. But the, the point is in that relationship, when you were being disobedient to your parents, was there a lot of good communication going on between you and mom and dad? No. The relationship was still intact. They were still mom and dad. You were still their child. But when you were being disobedient, the, the, the communication broke down. Same thing is true with the Lord. We don't lose the relationship, but when we're disobedient, that communication breaks down. So how can we know God's will when we're not listening to what he has to say? We're walking in disobedience. So if you want to know what God's will is, don't be ignorant Don't be disobedient, but be obedient. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now, if you notice, I didn't just type, I didn't have a typo here. The Lord is in all caps. When you read in your Old Testament, there's two different ways the word Lord is written in the Old Testament. Capital L, little O, little R, little D, and then all caps. If it's L with the little O, little R, little D, it's the word Adonai. It just means my master. If it's this word, it means Yahweh, the great I am, the relational God, the one who has established the relationship with the nation of Israel. So he says here, the heart of man plans his way, but it's Yahweh who establishes his steps. It's this relational God who says, It's great that you have plans and commit those plans to me and we'll walk together and I'll help you along the way and I will establish those plans. Because again, it's not bad to make plans, but when we make plans, we've got to make them understanding and trusting that God's going to give us direction and it's God's will that we're doing, not our own. Because the issue here in this passage, he's talking to believers. And he says, you're saying we're going to go over here and make a fortune You've kind of just left God out of the picture. All you're concerned with is making a fortune. We're going to talk next week about what do we do with our money. And how do we deal with money. Now that, okay, now I shouldn't have said that. Because that means next week nobody's going to be here. Um, but I, be here anyway. Trust me, we're not, going to, we're not going to beg you for money or anything. We're not going to hold you down while you write a check. But the issue is, we're going to talk about how does God choose for us to deal with our money. But here he's saying, the issue is not, do you want to go make a fortune? The issue is, you've left God totally out of the picture. You're making a fortune just so you can satisfy yourself. But he says, make your plans and allow the Lord to establish the steps. So then how can we be obedient? We're saying, wait, be obedient. How do we do it? First thing is, we need to know what God's will is. You say, well, how do I know that? Well, it's just some feeling you get. No, I'm just kidding. You know it from here. So I don't know what God's will is. Well, have you opened your Bible lately? No. Well, you're not going to know what God's will is without this. 
You know what God's will is here in the church, in the body. When you have someone who says, or you come and say, I believe the Lord's calling me to do this, and everybody in the body says, I don't think you're wrong. You need to listen. God uses his body to confirm his plans and his will. God uses others to teach us and to to challenge us. God uses mentors. A gentleman named John Van Horn, when my father passed away, he was my Sunday school teacher. And John and Patty took me under their wing as a 17 or as an 18-year-old kid. And I've been in and out of their home, and they are my parents to a, lot of, to a great extent. And when my kids were growing up and I didn't have a dad to go, hey, Dad, what do I need to do in this situation? I called John Van Horn. And there were times when John Van Horn said, wait, I don't think you need to do that. And times when he said, yeah, I think that's the right way. So we we seek God's word. We seek the church. We seek mentors. Not only do we need to know what God's will is, we need to understand what God's will is. Ephesians chapter 5 says, understanding what the will of the Lord is. See, we can understand it. I have people all the time tell me, I don't read my Bible because it's hard to understand. And what I say is, your Bible's hard to understand because you don't read your Bible. Yeah, there are some passages. You get into Leviticus and Numbers, it gets a little tricky. There's some of the Old Testament prophets that you go, man, I don't have the slightest idea what he's talking about. I remember teaching through the book of Daniel in the church in Texas, and our first Sunday for Daniel chapter 1, I stood up and said, guys, I have studied all week long. And I'm still not sure enough as to what's being said here for us to start the series this week. We're going to sing two more songs and go home. Because I didn't want to jump in and guess what the Scripture said. But if you study and you take your time to, un- to dig in there and to know you can't understand what the will of the Lord is. You can understand this book. Not because you're smart, but because the Holy Spirit teaches you through it. So we know God's will, we understand God's will, and we prove God's will. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It says discern or prove the will of God. What does this mean? For me, I've been following the Lord for 40, how old am I? 45 years. Been serving the Lord in ministry for 32 years out of those 45. There are times when I go, I've prayed, I've read the scriptures, I've asked other people. I'm not sure what I need to do. It seems like I need to step out and do this. Seems like a crazy thing to do. As an example, February of 2000, I was talking to a little church in Palestine, Texas, about possibly becoming their pastor. This is what the church told me. We're we're about 50 people right now. At one time, we'd gotten up to about 350. 
You will be the fifth pastor, and we're four years old. We're $77,000 in debt on a building that we do not own. We can pay you $2,000 a month. I had a family of six. Do you want to be our pastor? (laughs) That's a tricky question. Judy and I flew to Texas, hung out with them for four days. I said, yes, it's exactly where we need to be. So we pack up our kids and we drive to Palestine, Texas. No place to live, making $2,000 a month. But God used that time. We proved the will of God. We sought him out and we said, okay, Lord, you, we believe you're calling us to do this. We're stepping out and it doesn't make any sense whatsoever for us to do this. But we're doing it for your honor and glory. Show yourself faithful. And we proved the will of God. We proved that he is who he says he is, that he will take care of our needs. If you notice, I never went hungry. You know, we we raised our kids there. We were there for 15 years. And God moved in a lot of ways through that time. So we prove the will of God. We say, God, this is what you've called me to do. I'm stepping out, even though it may not make any sense. And then lastly, we do the will of God. Ephesians 6, 6. He's talking to bond servants there, but the issue is, he says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Doing the will of God from the heart. Are we that sold out to God's will? Because if we're going to do his will, we've got to be sold out to whatever he calls us to and whatever he says, that's what we're going to do. When I'm standing this last week and, and talking to a young man who is a missionary in the Republic of Georgia, and he's at a meeting in Minneapolis as his wife and three children are back in the Republic of Georgia, the smallest child, six months old, and his wife's rup- appendix almost ruptured, and they had to rush her into surgery. And here he is at this meeting, going, what do I do? By the time he flew back to the Republic of Georgia, it's going to take him 31 hours to get there. You know, he might as well finish out what he's doing here and fly back and not pay the extra money to get his ticket changed. and all. The- but the issue is, He's doing God's will. He took his wife and he's raising his three kids in an area that's not the safest area in the world to be a Christian. The Republic of Georgia is a little bit better than Azerbaijan, which is a little bit better than Iran. But they all are dangerous to be there as a believer. People say, well, you are just nuts for taking your family into that situation. You should never take your kids there and put them underneath that. I'm not going to tell somebody never to do something that God's called them to do. You say, well, wait, that's an extreme example. Okay, let me tell you another example. 
my wife and I, and this is not a statement about homeschooling, so don't. But when we were first raising our kids, when we first started having children, I was in Bible college. Everybody at Bible college homeschooled. And we said we believe God has given our children to be lights in the community. We're going to put them in public school. You would have thought that we committed our kids to Satan. You're going to put your kids in public school? Don't you know what public school will do? I've seen good and bad in public school. I've seen good and bad Christian schools. I've seen good and bad homeschool. The issue is putting your kids where God wants them. If that means the Republic of Georgia, if that means public school, if that means homeschool, the issue is those are not your kids. They are on loan to you from the Lord. So what is God calling you to do? From the heart. Now don't say, well, God's calling me to do something that you know is sinful. Because God's not calling you to do that. That is a lie. But if you know God's calling you to be obedient in an area, and you're saying, it's a little scary, do it. Do it anyway. Scary or not. Because you never know what God's going to do. One more illustration. Some of you have heard the story before. If you've not, then, then you need to look up the story. The 1950s, five missionaries went to the jungles of Ecuador to reach out to the Waraona Indians who had never had good contact with white man before. The only people that had been in there were oil men and they would kill those oil men just as soon as look at them. But these five men believed that's where God called them to be. Flew a plane into a little desert strip right by the edge of the water, a sandy area, set up camp. Called their wives on January 6, 1955, and said, 1956 and said, we just made contact with three. We're excited to see what God's going to do. We'll call you in two days. January 8th came, no word. January 10th came, no word. Finally, they sent in a search party and found all five men had been slaughtered by those Indians. Two years later, the wife of one of those young men and her daughter went to live among the same Indians who had killed her husband, along with the sister of one of the other men who had been killed. Eventually, they led people to the Lord in that tribe, and one of the men who speared those five men to death became the surrogate father of one of the young men who he killed his dad. That young man accepted this older man into his home. His kids called him grandpa. He killed their real grandfather, but they called him grandpa. That Indian tribe now sends missionaries around the world. Was it God's will that those five men be slaughtered on a beach in Ecuador? I think if you asked all five of them today, they'd say, yes, it was. That it was God's will that the five of them die so that that tribe of Indians would come to know Christ.
Did it make sense? No, it didn't make sense. People worldwide called it a tragedy. Made the front of Life magazine, this tragedy that these five men were killed. Hundreds of people committed their lives to serve the Lord worldwide as a result of those five men dying. I'm not a betting man, but if I was a betting man, all five of those men would tell you it was worth it. Seems crazy. And I'm not saying everything God calls you to do is going to be crazy. But I'm saying seek his face. Don't do just because it feels like that's what you need to do. Seek his face. Seek his word. Seek others' opinions and ideas and put it together to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And when he shows you what he wants you to do, go for it. Don't wait. Don't second guess. Step out and do it. Let's pray.